Welcome to The New Talent Code, a podcast with practical insights dedicated to empowering change agents in HR to push the envelope in their talent functions. We're your hosts. I'm Lihia Zamora. And I'm Jason Serrato. We're bringing you the best thought leaders in the talent space to share stories about how they are designing the workforce of the future, transforming processes, rethinking old constructs, and leveraging cutting-edge technology to solve today's pressing talent issues. It's what we call the new talent code. So if you're looking for practical, actionable advice to get your workforce future ready, you've come to the right place. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the New Talent Code with your co-hosts, Lihia and Jason. Hi, Jason. Hey, Lihia. Well, today we have a very special guest, Alexandra Levitt, who is the founder and CEO of Inspiration at Work. It's actually a consulting business that helps prepare organizations to be future ready, as we call it, or competitive in the future business world. What's exciting is all the work Alex has done. She's also a syndicated columnist for a lot of tier one publications, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Fast Company, Forbes. Clearly, Alex writes really well. But what excites me today is the fact that she knows a lot about a topic I'm passionate about skills, skills gaps, upskilling, how employees can actually make themselves more employable. So giving some really practical advice to people younger in their careers in terms of where to focus their upskilling efforts. So without further ado, I wanted to introduce you and everyone else to Alex. Hello, Alex. Welcome to our podcast. Hi, Ligia. Hi, Jason. So great to be here. We are so excited. So today, like I was mentioning earlier, we're going to dive into how companies can help employees visualize their career paths. Think about that. It's really about taking control of the upskilling, the reskilling, or more commonly known as the development that you need in order to get you there. Imagine that, a clear roadmap. Because at the end of the day, generic peanut butter approaches don't work. We all know that. What works for Jason doesn't work for me. What works for Alex may or may not work for someone else. So today we're going to talk to Alex about this from both sides of the equation, both from the talent acquisition side, as well as from the talent management side. I'm excited. (laughs) So Alex, as a way of introduction, we ask this of all of our guests. So we're firm believers that people can and should try different career paths, right? How did you get started? I mean, did you at one point think when you came out of college, actually in high school, I'm going to be an author. I'm going to be a syndicated columnist in the New York Times. I'm going to write books about upskilling. How did you get started? What what sort of sparked that passion? How did you get here? Aliyah, I actually love this story. I've I've been telling it for years because I couldn't illustrate my own points better than explaining my nonlinear career path. And essentially, I graduated from college a few decades ago now, and I had been one of those high-achieving students that when I set my mind to something, I was able to get the good grades and I was able to achieve. And when I went out into the business world, it was an extremely rude awakening. I was working first at a PR agency and then later on at a Fortune 500 
company in their PR department. And to say that I crashed and burned in my first several jobs would be a severe understatement. My first boss hated me so much that I thought I had killed a relative. I was constantly watching people who had half my work ethic get promoted ahead of me. And it wasn't just the guys, it was also the women. So I was like, what am I doing wrong? And then finally, one of my managers took a little bit of pity on me and said, Alex, I think you have potential, but you're acting like a square peg in a round hole. You don't assimilate. You don't really fit in here. You need to know how to make your achievements known in a way that's palatable to other people and not perceived as overeager or presumptuous. And so she suggested that I take this course called the Dale Carnegie course. Jason Lee, I don't know if you, you guys are familiar with this. <laughs> right. So, you know, when I took Dale Carnegie, all of a sudden I learned the importance of making a good first impression and how to get your ideas across and how to gain collaboration and cooperation with people who didn't report to you, who were just colleagues. And suddenly this light bulb went on and I I was like, wow, someone should really clue in other 20-somethings on what they need to do to be successful in business. And I'm in kind of a unique age group where there are very few people my age. I'm at the tail end of Generation X. It's a small group. And there really wasn't a lot being written for 20-somethings at that time. But the next generation that was coming up was called the Millennials, and there were a lot of them. So I got this idea to write a book called They Don't Teach Corporate in College, A 20-Something's Guide to the Business World. And originally, I intended it to be a side project because I had finally gotten promoted after like four years. <laughs> and I was going to go ahead in my, in my career as a, a PR executive. But the book did well. And much to my pleasure and surprise, I was able to establish a new career as a workplace author and speaker who was focused on the 20-something demographic. And let's give you a little plug here. It's on its fourth edition. Uh-huh. Clearly yeah. it's getting read. Yeah. <laughs> and as a, as a fellow tail end Gen Xer, who was also the f- first in his family to go to college, I appreciate the fact that you're out there trying to help people like me. <laughs> Thank you. Well, starting off, There weren't a lot of us. And then when the millennials came up in the world a couple of years later, then all of a sudden there was a huge audience because the millennials like to do things their own way. And if anyone needed the advice of, you know, this is kind of how we like to do things in the business world. These are the tried and true tactics that work. It was them. And so I was able to start this new career. And the funny thing is, at the beginning, I didn't know anything. I was just a kid who did research for a book. I wasn't an expert by any means, but by doing the research, by talking with organizations and talking with individuals over the years, I was able to gain that expertise. And when we talk about skills, I have to point out that the skills that have been the most useful in my career as a writer, speaker, and consultant are those public relations skills that I learned in those very first couple of jobs. Things like how to promote yourself, how to write coherently, how to to get to the heart of an issue and focus on what other people need and how to give it to them, how to be a decently adequate public speaker, how to approach things with enthusiasm. I mean, these were all skills that I learned in those first couple of jobs and I wouldn't be able to do what I do had I not started in that area. And so it looks to some people from the outside like, wow, you went from being in PR to being a workplace consultant. And then you went from 20-somethings to to kind of a more general approach. And then you moved into the, the world of the future of work. But really, all of these pivots, if you look at them closely, make sense given the skills that I acquired over time. I love the concept of your side project then became your passion. I can relate to that. So you talk a lot about 
career durability. And of course I, I did my research. I read about him and I thought exactly what I'm thinking now, man, I wish I knew this when I was freshly minted out of college. Talk to us about what you mean by career durability. What are the pillars, the five pillars of career durability? Sure. Well, career durability is a model that I developed with DeVry University. It's actually a couple of years now. It was right at the start of the pandemic. And we were attempting to figure out what skills were really essential for people to learn. Because by then, upskilling had become a bit of a trend. But let's be realistic. You can't train everyone in everything. So we have to be able to focus in on the things that are most important. And so for us, this career durability model provided this ongoing guidance for people and employers too on how to keep yourself and your people gainfully employed over time, no matter the disruptions that might come our way. Because let's face it, the the COVID-19 pandemic is not the last disruption we're going to have. This one disruption has been going on for years. There might be another pandemic. There's definitely going to be adverse climate events. So when you think about this, it's really essential that people have the ability to stay employed <laughs> no matter what comes up in the market. And that that's what career durability is all about. It's the ability to be gainfully employed over a period of time, regardless of disruptions. Is it fair to call this, sorry, Alex, is it fair to call this transferable skills then? Is yeah. that what we're talking about? Mm-hmm. I think that that's a good way of putting it. And they're transferable skills that when I tend to think of transferable skills, it might be an industry by industry or job by job type of thing where you can transfer one set of skills into another role that might be adjacent or related. And career durability is like, well, you can really become anything if you have these, these set of skills. So the five pillars that, that you mentioned are, first of all, soft skills and hard skills, hard skills being things that you can teach in a given occupation. The second pillar, soft skills, of course, is is all over now. The fact that we as human beings need to be able to contribute the things that machines cannot contribute. So things like empathy, judgment, interpersonal communication, intuition. I mean, these are all things that regardless of the occupation that you have, that's how humans are expected to add value. The next uh, pillar is something called institutional knowledge, which refers to being in an industry or being in an occupation long enough to have seen many, many different types of scenarios play out. So when we talk about the baby boomers and their retirement and the knowledge transfer that's essential, that's the institutional knowledge that we want to see make it from these people who have been in jobs for decades into the next generation. Because at the end of the day, sometimes there's no substitute for being there. And that's institutional knowledge. Then we have growth mindset, which is also referred to as learning agility. And it's it's the recognition that you are going to need to shift and pivot. And you're not going to get overwhelmed when things change on a dime. You're going to be able to call on your existing skills and figure out how you can do the next thing. So everybody now has to have that growth mindset or that learning agility. And then the final skill set that I think we'll probably talk about more over over the next 30 minutes or so is called applied technology skills. And so we talk about when we talk about what's essential and what isn't. It's not really essential for everybody in the world to know everything that IT does. So IT might program software. They might build an application. They might manage a database. 
the average employee doesn't need to know how to do that. So using the example of talent intelligence, if you are an HR professional, it would behoove you to learn the fact that you can use analytics and you can use talent intelligence to source out skills in a given population that might not be readily apparent. And it might not be something that you can do with your eyes just looking at a resume. It might be something you need technology to help you suss out. And that's an example of having applied technology skills. You know that that software is available to help you do your job more efficiently. And that's probably the area where we're focused most on when it comes to career durability, because it's the area that we haven't traditionally trained people in. But now it's becoming more and more critical that we have official training programs in place to make sure people get access to those applied technology skills. I love the five pillars. There's a lot to dig in on and explore. Here we are in 2022. The world is moving faster than it ever has before. So, I mean, these last two years have felt like dog years, right? When we're talking about soft skills and empathy, even before the pandemic, as HR and organizations were going through digital transformation, there was a lot of things around like social network analysis and a lot of research on like the value of a connector manager. Now that we're here in 2022 and it's very normal to spend your day entirely remote or hybrid or working off your back deck or bouncing from, from Zoom to Google Meets to, to WebEx, how does all of this focus on the value of soft skills and especially empathy play out in a remote hybrid world? I love that question because it is more essential than it ever was because it is more difficult to build rapport and interpersonal relationships in a distributed environment. I mean, if you think about how humans over the millennia have built relationships and built closeness, it's by sitting around the campfire. And in an office context, it's about chatting by the vending machines or in the kitchen or just seeing someone in the elevator and having those casual interactions that are just not possible anymore. And where I see the biggest problem, honestly, is for the younger generation that has never had an opportunity to work in a real office environment and hasn't picked up the type of skills that I had to learn in Dale Carnegie, for example, because I wasn't getting them enough on the job to be effective. Well, now, if I was starting out now, I don't know how I would learn them at all. And so I really feel for those young people who are starting off in professional jobs who just don't have the context to figure out how things work. And you mentioned empathy. I think on behalf of management, this has been an area of major improvement. I just do want to give generally HR professionals for their guidance and then the managers who are listening to that guidance major kudos because throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, we have seen an unprecedented level of well-being emphasis, support for the whole employee and what they're going through, the adoption of new programs and, and emphasis on how to, to help people be healthier emotionally, mentally. And this was completely unheard of prior to the pandemic. And we were not focused on anything other than what that individual could produce from a career perspective. I also loved your comment around, you know, intellectual agility and, and curiosity. Having been a former HR leader when we were going through kind of leadership development discussions and looking at who we wanted to try to develop and support, it was one of the things we would look for, for our people interested in growing and curious and able to learn quickly on their own, then we'll even help them even more. Well, tell me a little bit more about that because, you know, it struck me. I had a, like a great reaction when you said learning agility, because in previous jobs, 
you know, when everybody started talking about growth mindset, growth mindset, and I'll be honest, I had to Google it. I'm like, what are you talking about? And to be honest in the name, it's, it sounds a little bit judgmental. You don't have a growth mindset, you know, uh, change your mindset. Yeah. Change your mindset. (laughs) Whereas when you reframed it as learning agility, I kind of perked up because I'm like, Oh, it's your ability to continue. And probably penchant is probably the right word to continue to learn. So talk to us a little bit more about that. I'm fascinated. Having a growth mindset It is an attitude, but it's also something that you can control. And it's something that you can take steps to learn. It's not one of those things where you either have it or you don't. So, you know, we're going to be judgmental against those people who just naturally don't have it. But it is something that you can practice. And I think exposure is a really important concept here. And I think we've all had a tremendous amount of exposure to change and to disruption over the last two years. So that certainly helps. But just especially for those of us who are are a couple of years or a couple of decades out of university, I, I think it's a bit of a hard pill to swallow sometimes that we're not done learning, that we have to be constantly looking at ways to do things better, that just because we've been in a role or an industry for decades, that does not mean we know everything. So you have to be willing to say, all right, yes, I may have graduated 30 years ago with a degree in this field but I need to be willing to do it differently. I think there's something across the board that we just need to, by developing learning cultures within our organization, make it okay to not know everything right off the bat. And just because you know something one day doesn't mean that you're set for the rest of your career, even your tenure in that organization. Let me ask you something though then. How do you know if somebody has learning agility? How do you determine, how do you evaluate their, I'm going to say, level of learning agility? I would say, first of all, um, someone's ability to assimilate new information is a really important part of learning agility. And essentially, that means that you take someone who's got expertise and you give them a completely new idea that they might not have any experience and see if they can relate it to something they've already done. And this goes back to a concept that we like, we all like to talk about in this group called skills adjacency, where if you know how to do skill A, you're likely to be able to pick up skill B. But there are certain people who have, and I love the word pension, I'm going to steal it, who have a penchant to look for adjacent skills that they can draw upon in order to, to accomplish a new type of task. And this is something that you can absolutely assess for in the interview process. But the thing is, you're never going to get people in the door to see what their learning agility ability is if you are insisting that they have the exact combination of skills and experiences that you would ideally want in that role. So often we are discounting people thinking, well, you know, they haven't done this before, they can't learn this, and that's not at all true. So in fact, instead of checking the the 17 boxes, you can really just look for a couple. And one of those is learning agility. It's like, okay, well, if they've done things that are connected or somewhat similar, even if they've been in the business world or whatever field for a couple of years, they probably have picked up the ability to do certain things and let's give them a shot. And you can assess for that in the interview. You mentioned earlier in the conversation around kind of the plight of the recent graduate trying to find their way in the working world, especially in a remote environment where they may not have been in the facility with people in person. A lot of folks that have come through university or even in high school are hearing that they're not going to go work somewhere for 30, 40 years like their parents did. And in many cases, their parents weren't able to work somewhere for 30 or 40 years either. And they've been learning and hearing about this concept of kind of project-based employment. And in organizations, 
we're talking more and more about on-demand talent and, you know, total workforce management visibility. When you kind of put those two things together, you can see how the world of work has become very fluid and jobs and roles are constantly changing. But if you're a large organization, you still want to retain talent. You need to have some sustainable talent, build bench strength, build leadership. How does an organization lay the groundwork for something like an upskilling program or internal mobility to maybe build that project-based approach within their organization? Well, first of all, Jason, I love the project-based approach. It's funny to see new graduates coming out of college now and never having a single full-time employer that they're just from the get-go, they're working as gig employees, essentially. And I think there's pros and cons to it. As someone who's been in the gig economy for two decades now, I, th I think it's it's risky. It's a mindset, Alex. I'm a different generation, and I'm actually the generation that would be the mom and dads to the generation that came out. But also, if, if anything, I think it also speaks to the increased importance kind of on your five pillars of career durability. Right. So anyway, when you're working in these gig jobs, I mean, I, I think that there are challenges and I think there are, are pros and cons. But going back to the employer side of it that you asked about, Jason, I think there's two things that you need to do. And the first thing is not just about how to maintain the best talent in that respect. But I think performing strategic workforce planning in general has never been more important. It's a little bit of a contradiction because when we think of strategic planning, we think of the five-year plan. And that's not really what I'm suggesting because I don't think it's possible to do that anymore. But I do think that in the moment, and maybe this is something that you revisit every six months to a year, to really look at your current size, your composition as an organization, how you've developed your workforce to start, um, evaluating demand for skills based on the direction that the market is taking and that your competitors are taking, and determining the gaps where there's going to be a need for skills that you don't currently have. And how are you going to design the measures that will close those gaps? And the really important thing about strategic workforce planning today is that it needs to connect to the overall goals of the business. And when we think of learning and development within the organization, typically these initiatives have been very ad hoc. And that's no longer an acceptable way to go about skill acquisition within an organization. So you just have to have a bigger picture. And again, with the caveat, your bigger picture isn't going to last very long. You're going to have to continuously revisit this. And then I think the other point of this is having an internal talent marketplace, being able to list the jobs that are available and the skills that are associated with those jobs, not necessarily the specific experience that you need to have, but the skills you need to have, and then make it part of your culture that it's okay to move around internally. I think that that's where we're getting hung up a bit. A talent marketplace is fairly easy to build and it's fairly easy to post a job in there. The question is, in your culture, is it okay to tell your boss you want to move into a completely different function and you want this training in order to make it happen. I think many organizations still have a long way to go. We did see with the pandemic a little bit of a shift occur simply because organizations had to, in many cases, move people from one function into another when one function was dead and another function was picking up like gangbusters. And so it was done out of necessity. But I don't know, and I, I hate to sound pessimistic, I don't know if that's going to be a permanent change and it really needs to be. But let me ask you something, because I'm, I'm going to be the devil's advocate here. So, okay, so things are almost back to normal. I've got goals I need to deliver against. And somebody's like, eh, 
I don't want to do this job anymore. Now I'm going to go and apply for this other job. Bye. I mean, should we have maybe some rules around these marketplaces so that I at least have some accountability behind the work that needs to get done for my function and for my team? Or does that flow against the entire concept of a marketplace? I mean, there is an aspect of Even if this was a gig, and let's say everybody who I depended on was a part-time contractor, there is a some sort of an agreement that they have something to deliver within a certain time frame, right? So does it work that way where it's about, okay, the gig starts this date, ends that date, and until the deliverable's done, you're well, you can't really be applying or moving somewhere else. I love this. And actually, I love being a workforce futurist because about five years ago, I was involved in some scenario planning around what we called strategic talent assembly, which referred to you have a specific business problem and you put together a team of resources who could be full-time, part-time contract workers in this country, in other countries, in this function, in that function, from this department, from that department, for the express purpose of solving that specific business problem. And once that project is complete, everyone disperses and moves on to other things. And I think I'm going back to Jason's point about gig work. I think that this is going to increasingly become the model. So it's not that you're going to leave your employer or your manager high and dry in the middle of a project. It's that we're all going to set these goals for what we want to achieve. And when that initiative has been completed, you have the, the ability to move on. At least that's how I see it working. Not that you're right in the middle of something <laughs> that you're supposed to be accomplishing. And, oh, this other job pops up on the marketplace. You're, you're going to do it. I just think the nature of work is changing where assignments are going to be more short term. So should we change the mindset to then in terms of developing or upskilling employees? And should it be more about their careers rather than tying upskilling to the corporate goals? I mean, because that's essentially where we're headed. I think it needs to be both. I know that that's sort of a nebulous answer, but the upskilling programs do, and we go back to strategic workforce planning. I mean, there's going to be skills that are more essential for your industry and your organization than others. So I think it would be unrealistic to say that we're, we're not going to focus at all on those, but the individual really does play an important role and not just what they need to learn, but what they want to learn, what's interesting to them, where they see their passions going, because that's how we're going to retain people. And increasingly in all the research that's being performed, we are seeing that no matter what, employees are saying professional development is one of the most important reasons why they stay with an organization. So we just have to be looking at it from from a multitude of fronts. And I think we've got a great start in that as we come out of this pandemic period. This has been a great conversation because through all the kind of discussion, we've been weaving around your five pillars. They really do resonate. And some of the second half of this discussion, we were really talking a lot about culture and about culture change. And that's kind of the hard part. Right. So even more kind of a focus on soft skills and empathy and kind of the role you play in the various sides of this discussion. We do have a question we like to ask of everyone before we let them leave. If someone had believed in your potential to pursue a different career path than the one you're in today, where would you be today? I mean, have you followed your passion? Would your passion have taken you in a different direction? Very few people know this, Jason, but I started off as a fiction writer. I had written, by the time I was 22, I'd written three novels, and one of them was very close to being made into a series by the network Showtime. And if if that had happened, I would be in a completely different career path 
as perhaps a screenwriter or a novelist. And I try to still use that creativity in my job today by making scenarios for, for foresight and future futurist planning and helping HR organizations envision um, where they're going to be in the near future and creating personas around different people that are being affected by these changes in the workforce. So I'm pretty happy. Overall, I feel like I get to use those skills on a, on a daily basis, but perhaps it would have been different if that one series had been made. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I, I, I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's amazing how we've come to the same discussion from different sides of the process, but uh, have found so much interest. I think this just speaks to how much this is on you know everyone's mind and how much we'll continue to try to solve this new approach to the world of work and the new talent code. Thank you so much, Alexandra, for, for joining us. Lahia, it's great as always. Everyone out there, we'll see you next time here on the new talent code. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for listening to The New Talent Code. This is a podcast produced by Eightfold AI. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit us at eightfold.ai and you can find us on all your favorite social media sites. We'd love to connect and continue the conversation.